street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Hello, welcome to Epistemic number 10. Um, today we are going to be talking about some motivational interviewing, and uh, but first I'd like to introduce our guests. Uh, first we have Anthony Magdabosco. What's up, Anthony? Hey guys, what's up? Good to see you, Reed. Yeah, yeah I'm Reed. Yeah. Well, uh, hello uh, from Cordial Curiosity. We also have uh, Dan. Uh, what's up, Dan? Hey, hey, hey. Dan is back. Yes, and introducing our guest, um, Aaron. Hey, how's it going, Aaron? Hey, how's it going, Reed? Thanks for having me on. Sure, no problem. All right, so how are you guys doing? What's What's been up? Uh, man, I've been pretty busy. I just got back from Norway uh, a couple days ago. That was awesome. I'd love to get into that if we can. Yeah, I saw a bunch of photos and, and videos. It looks like a really great trip. It's yeah, it was cold. awesome. Yeah, It was cold, yeah. In fact, it snowed one night. Uh, started snowing sort of like a sleety snow and i woke up the next morning there's like three inches of snow on the ground but it was a good trip i ended up going to give a talk on street epistemology and we had a good turnout too i'd say probably 60 or so people showed up to hear i saw me talk like about. a behind the scenes periscope stream someone did and there was a really yeah. nice library there it was really great if this was a bookstore and they had like oh, a, a seats and things i think i'm gonna I, I set up a gopro in the back of the room so uh, in the video that I'm editing, I'll probably cut to it so you'll have a better view of what of what the the layout of the place was. But it was cool. Um, there was one woman who's been interested in street epistemology named Linda, and she came from Finland to see the talk, which was really neat. I ended up hanging out with her and a few other people from Norway, and we did some street epistemology on the street. There was uh, a guy who wanted me who interviewed me for his podcast, and then there were two newspapers that ended up running stories on my talk. So wow. I think it created quite a buzz, hmm. really. Yeah, it's really neat to see, and some good questions too from the from the skeptics that attended. Was it mostly skeptics there watching the talk? There were yes, but there were a couple Christians in the audience. Uh, one guy he said that he saw the article that came out the day before my talk, and that's why he came, and he was really excited to hear about this method. And when if I had time, he was gonna he wanted to invite me to some church function that he had and uh, it was cool. I mean, it was really neat to, to like talk to somebody who, who saw some of the promotional efforts and, and came to the talk. Nice. And but by and large, it was, it was all about a whole bunch of skeptics. It was really neat is after my talk, we went to this bar for like, uh, you know, drinks and things and the quality of the conversations that happened, it was so neat to be surrounded by level headed, rational, <laughs> thinkers who were who were questioning me about this method and they saw the they they were asking these just really really good questions um anything new it's almost like you were in a different it's almost like you were in a different country there anthony almost like i was in a different country yeah that being said though um you know we did street epistemology just we had like five conversations and even though almost everybody that walked by I think of the five that we talked to, they were all atheists, if I'm not mistaken. But 
um, one woman said something interesting. She said, I don't believe in any gods, but when I get older, I can find myself probably believing in one. So that led to a really good conversation. Well, what, why would you change as you got older? And she said, you know, as you approach death, you might want something more comfortable. So then the whole top, the topic changed to believing true things. There was another guy who was a musician who I don't think he believed in any gods, yet he thought that he had a spirit that would go on after he died. There was another guy that walked by that was didn't believe in any gods, but believed in karma. So the talk was, you know, if you were to punch me, sir, and then run away, what would happen? And well, I, would, I would get punched, you know, within a 24-hour period of time. A great wow. talk happened there. There was another <laughs> dude, this older guy, walked by, and we we said, hey, you know, we're talking to people about their beliefs, and he almost appeared to be insulted. I don't have any beliefs. I have facts. And oh, wow. and it was this okay. Well, what's the difference? How are how are beliefs different than facts? And so, just because you live in a in a secular or atheist society, it doesn't seem like your opportunities for conducting street epistemology diminish in any way. So it was very encouraging to see that. Yeah, that's another good argument for SE being this perennial project. It's an on it will ongoing keep keep being a thing even after like pretty much all the major things we talk about with people now like are no longer yeah. a problem. Yeah, in fact, this goes back to that whole thing like, hey, Anthony, if you could press a button and there not be any religious people anymore, would you press it? Um, hmm. No, because there's there's this fundamental underlying level of the, the, uh, the benefits that belief gives people and why do they need it, the psychological aspects of it. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, you know, the tendency that we have to believe things based on bad reasons. And that might be something that humans struggle with, you know, from this point, you know, going, I mean, for forever, whether you're a secular country or not. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, cool. And uh, when should we expect that video to be up? Can't wait for it. Well, maybe in a couple of days. Uh, I've been editing it. I, I, I spent most of the time on the airplane editing things. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of piecing it all together and um, that type of stuff. But uh, maybe in the next couple of days, I should have it out there. I'm really excited to release it too, because I think, I think it covers a lot of the, it covers many of the things that practitioners of SE don't consider. They just think I just need to ask, uh, I need to find a claim, challenge the what, why, and how, and then we're done. But there's so many things before and after and this talk covers that. So I'm really excited to be releasing that. Sweet. Cool. Mm. All right. Well, anything else about your Norway trip? No, nah, I've been talking too much. Okay. But it was great. It was fantastic. And the hosts, the hosts were incredible. It was excellent. Nice. Cool. So next up, we're going to be talking about just motivational interviewing. Um, Aaron, want to give a quick, quick intro in that and let us know all about it? Yeah, so you know we have a video that's going to pop up here in a little bit. That's kind of um, an example of how motivational interviewing might be implemented uh, in a clinical setting. Motivational interviewing is something that um, I've been trained in academically, um, and I've also implemented it as a counselor. Um, I specialize in addiction treatment, and when I came across street epistemology, I saw a lot of parallels. Uh, between the two approaches. And when I read, you know, I started reading some of the secular writers. Um, and when I read Anthony, or when I read uh, Peter Goshen's book, Manual for Creating Atheists, that rung a bunch of bells. He actually, I think, 
alluded to motivational interviewing as one approach for talking to people of different beliefs. Um, and then I started to make all of these correlations between addiction um, and religious belief, um, sort of the compulsory nature of the two. Um, that's something that I'm interested in exploring further in the future and possibly doing some writing on and research on um, because I see a lot of overlap there. Um, so interviewing, um, just to give a little bit of the background, um, it was developed by uh, two guys by the name of Miller and Rolnick. And um, it's kind of an offshoot or even a refinement of a previous model of, uh, of I would say, you know, psychological interaction um, that was developed by Carl Rogers, um, which is called person-centered therapy. So with the emergence of these different types of therapy, you know, we had Freud and then there was, uh, you know, Carl Jung and Albert Ellis. And then there was, you know, these different models of therapy that were emerging in the early days of psychology. And, um, you know, so, so this was one of them and Carl Rogers developed person-centered therapy um, amidst all of this. And if you go on YouTube, there's some really old grainy kind of black and white videos that you can watch of each one of these people presenting their style of therapy um, in like a mock interview with a client. And um, so a lot of what differentiated person-centered therapy and what differentiates motivational interviewing from other types of, of, of therapy is that it's a lot less directive. So traditionally therapy was very directive. You would come down or it was like a top-down sort of relationship. You would come to the therapist with your problems and the therapist give you advice, uh, maybe psychoanalyze, um, tell you what they think is going on. And then, you know, there was a lot of it. There was a question and answer process, but there was a lot of advice giving. So it was a lot more directive. Um, whereas motivational interviewing is more of a collaborative process. Um, it's more of you know, the therapist being the expert, or rather than in this case of street epistemology, uh, the interventionist being the expert, um, it is a um, it is is a relationship between equals um, and a collaboration towards a person's goals, whatever those may be, um, a clarification of a person's goals, um, not necessarily assuming what a person needs. Them where um, so that involves asking a lot of questions, um, and it involves sort of helping a person to explore what their values are first of all, and um, second of all, how their behavior or how their beliefs are aligned with those values. Um, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I love the idea of how it's uh, a meeting of equals, and um, we hear a lot of criticism about SE like even the word intervention maybe kind of implies that we're not equals. Like we have some type of authority about epistemology, but no, like uh, we are trying to become, trying to go into the conversation as equals as, you know, having the idea that we could be wrong and, you know, just talking about it in a cooperative way. I'm kind of wondering yeah, that's, if you, that's, yeah. oh, go, you go ahead, Aaron. 
Go ahead. No, you were wondering. I, I love wondering. Let's do yeah. It. <laughs> wondering is awesome. Yeah, I was wondering if you study. Do you take a specific class on motivational interviewing? Is it a specific discipline or or subdiscipline, or is it sort of you cover it for three weeks as as a in, you know as a small part of a larger body? Uh, well, you can do both. There is an actual. There is actually a motivational interviewing school that you can go to and become certified. Um, mm. and then there's also, it, it's just become so widespread that it's found its way into the medical profession. Um, it's found its way into, you know, from people, from doctors, offices, nurses, um, all the way down to just social workers. So if you're, if you're taking any type of social services, academia, you're going to come across and it has different, it, it has different permutations in some places it's called intentional interviewing, um, you know. And I've seen it called several different things, and it, that's why I kind of went back because a lot of these approaches are offshoots of his his ideas. Um, so, and I want to make it clear that it's not something that requires a lot of classical training. Um, the things that I've learned, really, uh, any anybody can learn, and it's less about theory than it is about practice because this is a, a conversational style. Um, it's, you know, they call it, I don't know if it's appropriate for, for us as skeptics, but the spirit of motivational interviewing is sort of what's reinforced. It's, um, it, you know, it's the attitude that you take in your discussion with somebody more than it is about, um, you know, doing it a specific way uh, because everyone's gonna have their own style. That's interesting. Do you think that there's a particular practitioner that would perform better at motivational interviewing than other another person or is it an equal opportunity type of thing um i will say that it, it is a counterintuitive approach for most people um you know maybe some conversationalists would find it more uh comfortable as a conversational style than others um you know it intuitively when you see somebody that you think may need assistance um the first reaction to that is to want to give advice um is to want to jump in and spread knowledge or share information um this sounds and so, i think it sounds so familiar to se like all the things that we warn about and all the things that we advise people to try to do yeah it's, it is really kind of counterintuitive um as is the case with many uh, facts about reality. Um, and as it turns out, the way that people behavior is very counterintuitive as well. Um, you know, it, a lot of times it has less to do with learning new information than it does uh, to do with emotions or, you know, the personal connection, what's might maybe called the therapeutic relationship or the therapeutic alliance that forms. Uh, if if those things don't develop, you you can have all of the tools in the toolbox, and you're not going to have a very successful um, relationship. Because you, you because MI is such a formal discipline, are there a particular set of rules that you have to live by? Whereas, like if Reed goes out on the street or myself, there's no body, there's no standard. I guess there's no like rules. We could basically just try whatever we want. And I'm wondering if you know when you're doing MI. Are there certain boundaries that you can't cross? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Are your hands tied in any way when you do MI as opposed to like us going out and doing SI and SE in the street? 
Well, and yeah, I guess, you know, I, I want to um, have a, a, a qualifier here that I'm not speaking for motivational interviewing. You know, I'm not certified to talk on behalf of it, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, it's a very compatible approach with many others. Um, it's kind of bled in for a while with the stages of change. And, you know, I, I don't know how many people uh, in the group are aware of that model. Um, they've found the need to sort of differentiate themselves from that. But anyone who is sort of well-informed about it will tell you that um, it, it's really only part of, it, it's only one tool um, among many. So it's not, mm -hmm. if you're a motivational interviewer, this is how you would do it. Um, it's sort of something to have in your in your toolkit uh, for engaging primarily. Um, you know, I found that it works really good during the engagement phase. Do you, do you spe specialize in any particular area? Like, are you better with alcoholics as opposed to somebody struggling with weight loss or something? Or do you find that you can use the tool for or, or all sorts of things? Um, you know, when it comes to moving forward with a treatment plan, which is what I do, you know, I, I develop a plan with people for how to accomplish their goals. I'm probably much better at dealing with addiction because that's what I'm used to doing. But in terms of gauging um, where somebody's motivation is at and what their goals are, um, it, it's just it, it's such a um, compatible approach that uh, you could apply it pretty in a pretty broad spectrum. Are you familiar with the scientific literature about motivational inter interviewing? Like how much is there and like what kind of successes has it had, has it had over the years? Any idea about that? Um, you know, there's minimal research and I, I would call it preliminary. Um, this is sort of the nature of psychology being that it's uh, it is a young practice. Um, you know, even some of the more established methods like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, that have the most, uh, you know, sort of research behind them are, are still in their infancy um, in terms of establishing empiricism. So, you know, I, I would I would shy away from saying this is proven to work or that, you know, making claims about why this is better than that. Um, what's shown is that um, it's more effective than confrontation, especially for people that are resistant so you know if, if there are there's some research on the criminal justice system with people who are coerced to do one thing or another um or feel that they're being forced to do something against their will um and in addiction treatment in particular you know the traditional method was very confrontational it was uh this idea that we're going to get in your face and and confront you with your um, your misgivings and confront you with your delusions and that that is going to somehow change your mind. And it's that approach has proven to be very unsuccessful. Um, it, you know, just looking at the, the, the success rates and traditional treatment models is a testament to that effect. Um, so it, it is very promising uh, in terms of the research. It's showing promise in terms of um, actually just developing a model that is client-centered so the word that, that's used in the community. So it's, it's less focused on a one-size-fits-all type of model and more personalizing um, the approach to the, the individual. Um, intuitively, that, may, that sounds to me like something that would line up with evidence from what we know about human psychology, but I'll, I'll hesitate to go forward with making claims about research 
other than to say that the preliminary results are positive. Yeah. I know there was a recent podcast uh, of You're Not So Smart that just came out about the backfire effect. Um, they kind of gave an update about it and basically where the backfire effect failed to replicate in a little bit, a little bit of a way. But I think the gist of it was that people would revise their position on, on specific facts. Like they, they could hear facts and change their mind about the facts, but their underlying attitude, their underlying feelings about the topic, that stuff did not change whatsoever. And uh, it sounds like motivational interviewing is a great way to kind of get into those types of feelings and attitudes uh, rather than sticking with, with facts. Yeah, I you think know, you're right on attitudes, the Speaking of attitudes, it makes me wonder, like, when we're having these talks, people are going about their business and then they encounter us. Whereas in your situation, uh, people are making an appointment, I suppose, to see you. You're just not finding people on the street and saying, hey, do you need therapy? Uh, come to my clinic where I can give you some do some motivational interviewing with you. I mean, there are, people are coming you, to you at the start. Like they must recognize at some level that there's something that needs to be addressed. Um, do you find that the people that are coming to you are are honest about the issues that they have, or are they are they being coerced in some way to go to you and then you encounter resistance? I'm a little curious as to. The, the type like we always talk about barriers and one of the biggest barriers to se i think is is a person's honesty and i'm wondering if you have any trouble with that when you when you start these discussions with your patients yeah i'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because i think it's directly relevant to um to, to both motivational interviewing and what we're trying to do here um and it, it's something that i struggle with because there's a lot of group therapy, you know, we sort of have a culture of getting people together in these support groups. Um, and the way people behave in groups is quite different from the way that they behave in a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Um, honesty is a factor there. But then when it comes to when we're talking about religious belief, we're also talking about a socially sanctioned set of beliefs. Um, and so there's, I think there's far less of an incentive um, to examine, number one, to examine the veracity of those beliefs, um, and number two, to admit to any questioning that may may exist. You know, when I'm dealing with addiction, um, people are generally under some type of coercion, whether it's from friends or family members. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the stages of change, there's the stage of pre-contemplation, you know, where person is never really a problem. Um, and I think that that's where the majority of believers uh, reside in various unwarranted beliefs. Um, they're, they're residing in this place of never really having examined uh, critically the things that they hold to be true. And so, mm. you know, the, the honesty aspect of it, uh, really, I found that it takes time because when I first start to meet with someone, I would say, you know, depending on the person's disposition, um, it'll take several meetings of me sitting down and talking with them, um, sometimes for an hour and sometimes more before I can sort of break through the mask um, and find out what they really want because they'll be telling me what they expect me to want to hear. Um, yeah. And if, if you walk up that to somebody really else, 
yeah, you know, and if you walk up to somebody on the street and they don't know that you're an atheist, they're going to say one thing because they're going to assume that you're also a believer of some type. And if they know that you're a, a skeptic or whatever, that you don't believe or that you don't have any supernatural beliefs, they're going to say something else because of what they expect you um, to think about what they have to say. And um, a lot of the, uh, I think, the motivation motivational interviewing and just the attitude of collaboration and being willing to roll with resistance can break through that and, and but actually finding out what somebody thinks um what's behind the mask what is it that they actually think i can i can personally attest to that i can remember an anthony and i's conversation two years ago i remember one of the things i said was i was 100 percent confident in my beliefs um, which just wasn't actually true. I, I remember saying that because there was a social expectation, at least in, from what I understood to be true for my belief system, that you had to be as confident as you could be, or at least a public display of confidence was just as important, um, you know, regardless of how you feel on the inside, you know. So there is a bit of a that an SE as well, kind of breaking down barriers and and seeing what's really there behind the mask, because I think uh, all of us, religious or not, we, we do kind of put on masks for people for, you know, um, adjusting for expectations of whoever we're talking to. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know what, though, though, Daniel, I'm wondering, Daniel, I'm wondering, though, if you were there alone and you didn't have your friend with you, would you have given a different answer other than 100? I think I would have, probably. Yeah, I've thought about that myself. I think I would. But the other thing too, though, Anthony was at the time I was a part of the ministry. And so, uh, yeah. I, st I still might've said a hundred, you know, because I wouldn't know if people were going to watch that video and stuff. So right. it, yeah. it's hard to tell looking back. But what I think Aaron said something really interesting, which I never really considered before is that when somebody goes to see a therapist and you might be engaging with them using MI, they are probably recognizing that there's an issue. Right, they're overweight, or they have they're losing their job, or they they keep getting fired, and I don't know. They they know that there's a problem. People are telling them there's a problem. They see it for themselves. Whereas with somebody who's holding a belief that may not be true, especially one that's backed up by your entire community, and it, you're perceived to be virtuous because you're holding the belief, these are two completely different starting points. And I think that's um that's really worth noting. I think that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Maybe I, I it think, is a little bit harder to reflect on a belief when 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 people perceive you as being uh, better for it. You're a better person because you're holding it, as opposed to an addict, this nasty addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think you know this is where the style of motivational interviewing really has its strength because it recognizes that ambivalence is a state that exists inside of everyone. No matter how confident a person may seem, or no matter how oblivious they may seem to the other side of an issue, um, it acknowledges the fact that we all have a state within ourselves that in which we want it both ways, um, in which we feel that, hey, what if I was wrong, or what if there's this whole reality that I'm missing? And the key to motivational interviewing is to tip the balance of that scale um, in the direction of change. So it's not necessarily tailored yeah. on for, per se having true beliefs. It's more tailored on tipping balance of, of ambivalence in the direction of change. 
So that yeah. could apply little baby steps. So do you, do you employ a scale with your with your patients? Like like you see in the Yesi videos? On occasion I do. Um the way I apply it usually is when I'm when somebody is in treatment, um and you know, I'll say that a lot of peep data ambivalence, but there are a lot of them seem very uh, not to realize that they have a problem or or to to rationalize it. Um, but what I'll do is I'll say, you know, on a scale of one to ten, um, you know, how important is treatment, um, or how is it important? How important is? I wouldn't say treatment. I would say how important is it for you to get help. Um, to feel to feel like you need to get help with this issue, or how confident are you that you can accomplish X goal or Y goal? Um, and then if they say three, you know, I had a client yesterday. Uh, she said, you know, three, and I said, oh well, my first response is, well, why is it not one? Um, mm. nice. um, you know, to mm. her, three was a very small number, but there's a reason why it's not one. And, you know, she says, Oh, well, because, you know, my brother died of an overdose or, and then, and then she starts to, it's eliciting these, these, the motivation, it's eliciting the reasons why this person. And then I will ask, you know, how can we make it, uh, how can we move you up on that scale or what would move you up on the scale? I guess in, in terms of SE is what, what you're asking. So do you ever ask somebody directly, do you even want to move up on the scale or are you content where you're at? Or is that just a given that they want to improve? Uh, so what I what I tend to do with people, um, rather than just ask, "Do you want to change?" Um, or do you you know do do you want to do something different? Um, I try first. I try to be very careful about um, outlining the pros and cons that this person has for what they do, what they believe, or what how they're behaving. So be sure to get that person to our articulate in their own words and in a meaningful way to them the up and down sides of something so that that way you're not having to insert reasons you're not having to insert um your opinion you're not having to yeah. insert uh because but probably when it comes to religion most of the things people have heard are that it's all good um you know or uh, spirit, supernatural beliefs, or, you know, there's nothing that could possibly be wrong about this and it's all right. Um, it's a very one-sided sort of mentality, which is the same thing that we see with compulsive and addictive behavior. Um, so just inventorying the up and down sides, I do an exercise where I ask people, you know, what are the upsides of, of getting high? And most people have been asked that. Um, most people have probably never been asked what are the downsides of of being a Christian, or what are some of the downsides of being, uh, um, you know, in believing this particular religious belief. And if a person is unable to even identify any possible downsides, um, flag, um, and that's a place where you could express concern, um, because isn't it the case with everything in life that there are up and downsides? Um, Okay, so if, if somebody said there are no downsides to this behavior, then would you question their like their honesty with you? Um, it, that they would be. I, I wouldn't. I probably you know I probably wouldn't say you're lying to me. I would say, well, that that's kind of you know that's kind of interesting. To, yeah, <laughs> sorry, but yeah, I would say 
Well, you know, that that's kind of interesting to me. And it's, it's somewhat concerning because it seems like everything else I can think of in life would have both an up and a downside. Um, if And then I would try to use a hypothetical maybe to, well, if there was a downside, what would it be? Um, or do you see any downsides in other people who hold similar beliefs? Sometimes people feel more comfortable about talking about the, uh, you know, the shortcomings of others than themselves. Um, yeah. Um, we have a video that you brought that we want to play. Do you want to spend a little, maybe like a minute setting it up? I think it's like about six minutes. Sure. Yeah. This is a scenario in which, um, you know, the, the client is uh, resistant. So, you know, this is a really good application of, of the techniques of motivational reviewing. It's for dealing with somebody, you know, who right out the gate, they're just upset that they even have to be there or they're upset that you're costing them. Like, why are you bothering me? Why would you question my beliefs? How rude of you? Um, really, basically, the worst case scenario um, for, for an interlocutor. So, you know, I think that's the, it really does a good job of capturing how to arrest that sort of defensive response and make a human connection with somebody and then move from there. So are we going to see two, are, are these, are these, are these guys acting or is this a really a real situation with a patient? I couldn't tell. Uh, I would guess that it's, that it's acting. There are confidentiality issues of, um, you know, um, producing a video of, of an actual interaction. Um, but I, I pretty darn good. Um, pretty darn good act. Okay, I'm gonna switch over to it, and then uh, give me a give me a thumbs up, guys, if you're able to hear the audio. I don't think it's the case that people are either not motivated or motivated. And in fact, motivational interviewing was born from conversations with very very difficult people who were classified as not at all motivated to change and very resistant to treatment. Mr. Smith, that's your medication sorted out. Good. Blood pressure's a little on the high side. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if I could raise the subject of your weight. What? I wondered if we could spend just a couple of minutes talking about your weight. You are joking, aren't you? I mean, look, I've made time in my day to come here. Yeah. I'm kept in your waiting room for 45 yeah. minutes. Yeah. It's not acceptable. You know, yeah. if I make an appointment with yeah. a client for 10, I expect them to start yeah. at 10, not quarter to 11. Right, and you, so you're busy enough. And yeah, it, I've got it, other things to do. I've got yeah. accounts to do. I've got clients yeah. to coming in. Yeah, you know. yeah. And it wasn't necessarily easy for you to, to make the time to come down, and you had to wait in the waiting room. And now I raise the subject of weight. Yeah, just I mean, OK, fair enough. Um, I've got to have my blood pressure yeah. medication change, yeah. but I yeah. really haven't got time to talk about right. my weight. I mean, you know, I'm aware of my weight. I'm aware right. of the problems. And I'm also aware of the solutions, right. um, so I don't really need a discussion. It's it's just I've got too much to do at the moment, you know. Right, and so it, it's 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 been a bit of a rush for you coming in. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm sorry about the wait in the waiting well, room. Well, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad form, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's and and that that's not easy for you because you you'd like to go really soon, and here I am asking you to spend just a couple of minutes with me. Yeah, but basically I've got things to do. I've got to yeah. get back to the office. I've got. Yeah. A, pile of work that yep. I've got to deal with yep. and every time every moment out of my day yeah. means I have to work in the evening or yeah. weekends it you know. counts 
Well, when yeah. you're self-employed, you haven't got a choice. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. It's up to you. Just a couple of minutes. Well, I'm here now, so yeah, okay, if it's a couple of minutes, yeah? I promise. Okay, because I, I really must get on. I want, I, I want to simply ask you how you feel about it. About what? what losing weight? Well, obviously, I, I want to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, who doesn't? I mean, I'm aware that I'm over my... Uh, balance weight, but uh, yeah. I know that it's causing problems. I mean, obviously, I get out of breath if I have to do something about Harry, and I realise that I'm on this blood pressure. Right. Um, and, and maybe that's probably contributing to it. Right. So you can see the links between your weight and your health, and you'd like things to be. Yeah, a bit I mean, um, there are other things, but I mean, yeah, the weight is a. Is a, is a something I would like to get hold of, you right. get on, get on the handle on. Yeah. You'd like to if you could? Yeah, I mean, I know um, the, the theories of um, a bit of exercise on a regular basis, um, a balanced diet, um, but unfortunately, because of my lifestyle, because of being self-employed as an accountant, it's finding the time uh, to exercise, but also finding the time to sort of think, okay, I'm going to go shopping for this, that and the other, and yeah. I'm going to prepare a meal. Yeah. With me, it's very often... Ready meals and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. food on the run, you know, okay, yeah. grazing. Let me see if I can summarise what you've said, um, and then we'll see what next. Um, you lead a busy life. Yeah. Um, you run a business and you've got a lot to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're aware of the, of the links between your health and your weight, and you are concerned to some extent about that, and... Ideally, it sounds like you'd like to do something about it. It's just that your life is busy and rushed and you tend to use convenience foods in order to get the work done. Yeah, I mean, I, to a certain extent, because of my lifestyle, food is just fuel. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, okay. because I'm juggling all these balls and I don't want to drop any. I get it, yeah. I get it. And so if you could fit it in, you would like things to be different, but that's not so easy. No. Okay. Can I suggest that you come back and see me in a couple of weeks' time just to chat about this? Um, okay, I'm up for that, but it's going to be the same problem of A, finding time, right. and B, if I make an appointment, right. Right. I don't expect to be kept waiting for half an hour exactly. or whatever, because it's... Exactly. I'll tell you what might be a nice solution is if you come down first appointment, and I give you an appointment at 830 That'll um, be good. Then there'll be absolutely no waiting. And the purpose of that, of that visit will be to have a look at how you really feel about how you could move forward and somehow fit in a more healthier lifestyle into the busy work life that you've got. I'll maybe have a look at my schedules, see whether yeah. anything can be arranged or I can pass something yeah. on to some, and, and so, that I, so it's not a wasted interview. Yeah. So I can come here and say, okay, I've looked at my schedules, I've looked at things. Good. Whatever. Good. And see if you can fix it up and also give some thought to what we've talked about. Yeah, of course. Good stuff. Okay. Okay, thanks. Okay, Sorry I went off a bit. Yeah. A few well-chosen words, a very thoughtful question, can be worth more than many mouthfuls of busy talk. I want to try to stop smoking. Ah, uh, that's quite a decision. Well, it is because I've been smoking all my life. We could talk about adjusting your diet. Okay. We could talk about adjusting your exercise or getting more exercise.
right. or perhaps anything else that you think is relevant. And I'm wondering what makes the most sense to you. Wow, a lot of similarities. I definitely noticed him repeating back several times what his patient was saying to him. Yeah, so, um, um, you know, once again, like, like you said, the difference here, the, the person already knew that there was a problem with their weight. Um, but I think that um, if you start from the point, the standpoint of how much a person cares whether or not their beliefs are true, um, and most people will say that they care that their beliefs are true, then you can move from there to have a discussion about how we would determine whether or not that was the case. <clears throat> and some people are very resistant to that. Why, why would you question whether or not my belief is true? Um, so that would kind of be like the guy, you know, being upset about having to be there or not the person not being on time or whatever type of resistance that the person is exhibiting. You can shift from that to saying, um, you know, reflect as you say back what the person is saying and actually what that does is it validates their experience so you know i think what what religious communities offer to a lot of people is a validation of human experience um when you get to meet with these people who hold similar beliefs it's validating uh, of your your ambivalence for one thing about the uncertainty of death your ambivalence about the uncertainty of whether or not there's a god um, whether or not the supernatural exists. Um, so it's the validation of that and it's a provision of answers to the, so with, with motivational interviewing, a big part of the reflective listening aspect of it is just to say, yes, I hear you and I'm listening. Um, my motivation in this mm -hmm. discussion is not to tell you something you don't know. It's to truly understand you. Yeah, you, you can tell there's there. some, some truly, there's some empathy there. For sure, just uh, repeating back what he's saying and and not being judgmental about it, just kind of letting it be there and, and asking, like one of his first questions is like simply, how do you feel about losing weight? So that was that was interesting as well. Yeah, and I found that 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 there are different thresholds depending on the person that you're talking to. You know, I had a client last week that I had to and um, basically just empathize with for, for about half an hour before I could move anywhere else. Um, and that's just what needed to happen. If, if I had tried to be any more directive, if I had tried digging in, um, it would have backfired. I just had to sit and say, wow, yeah, that's, you know, that seems really, uh, you know, that's tough or, you know, just to, to identify with their experience. And just, um, I've watched that clip a couple of times. Um, and it's kind of dawned on me now that why the, why the, the therapist spent so much time listening to listening to the guy rant about waiting so long because I'm thinking if he didn't do that, if he just brushed it off, the client wouldn't more than likely, he'd be so frustrated. He probably wouldn't at all focus on why he has this addiction issue. So yeah, I could see why sometimes you, maybe you have to you have to spend some time on, you know, building, building that trust, listening and yeah. finding out what's, what's perturbing them before you can move on to the real thing. Yeah. The, the corollary of that, you know, for believers who, um, preaching you know, wanting to quote the bible to you um as, as you know as, mm -hmm. as annoying as it can be to a person who doesn't believe that the bible is true um uh, i think it can be important to just allow that and 
uh, because that's the person's reaction to their belief being questioned is they need to go through this process this compulsion really of, of sort of reinforcing it and being willing to sit through that being willing to and i think you're really good about that anthony i think that that that's a skill that you have um that has led to a lot of success in the conversations that you have is just a willingness to be with somebody and meet them where they are in that regard hmm. i've even had people pray on the trail before they even engaged in the talk to prepare themselves for the for the questioning which is quite wow. interesting all right, that was really cool. Um, Daniel, did you have a question before we move on to the next thing? And Aaron, you're more than welcome to stick around too as we keep moving forward. We'd love to have your input. Sure, I'll stick stick around as much as I can. Okay. If you have to drop off, that's fine. Uh, you don't have to give a formal uh, exit. Okay, yeah. Yeah, my son's napping, so he, he should be out for a little while. He's very active two-year-old so when he's out he's usually out I'm looking at him in the monitor he's got a book laying on top of his face blankets all up over him he's done <laughs> nice that sounds like how i fall asleep okay <laughs> moving on yeah so uh dan you wanted to talk about a little uh little thing that happened uh, a little bit ago yeah Right before I go into that, if I could just make one more comment on motivational interviewing, I kind of noticed that uh, there is a sensitivity from the client in talking about the weight issue, obviously, even though he does see it as a problem. It's kind of an uncomfortable subject, and I can, you can almost make a parallel to that with some people and how they view their beliefs. Certainly not all people who talk about it, but some people do feel uncomfortable talking about their beliefs. Uh, and at least I, I remember feeling uncomfortable talking about mine, and I'm wondering if it's because there is a negativity associated even just being doubtful about it, you know. Um, and, and so even being in that realm of thought, it kind of makes people a bit wary. Um, and I was kind of drawing some parallels to that in my mind. Um, so I, I didn't really have much more to say to that other than I thought that was an interesting anecdote. Yeah, uh, so, I think you really have a point there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, I really think you have a point there. Yeah, because there have been some times where I... Yeah. Um, Go when ahead, you're dealing Aaron, with a, a stigmatized, something that's stigmatized, um, and I think that doubt is, um, you know, sort of overeating is stigmatized, uh, drug use is stigmatized. Um, you can put all these things in that sort of category. Uh, there, There is a real reluctance there to, to talk about it or to even open up about it i think you really that, that's a really good point yeah thanks um so yeah good to hear your input on that thought so it's not just you know me rambling but yeah so i got to uh hear frank turek come speak at, at baylor university last tuesday um and he was speaking on his book um, i don't have enough faith to be an atheist uh i had just finished the book um, that day. Frank Turk is a uh, popular Christian apologist. Um, he's been at it for a long time. Uh, he even debated Christopher Hitchens back in the day. Um, and so I think through most apologist circles, he's uh, pretty well known. He has a website called thecrossexamine.org um, with uh, where he contributes and, and some other apologist writers contribute as well. Um, and so I, I got to see him and I even got to ask him a question at the very end at, to the Q&A. 
Um, and uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, I can't say I can't say I was impressed uh, because you know I, I was a Christian, you know, um, and, and I got along fine without hearing any of those arguments, and I didn't hear most of them until I was coming into the process of of doubt. Um, and so a lot of that stuff, I would say, is kind of in the beginner territory of apologetics. You know, he, he talks about the cosmological argument. Um, he talks about some of the, the historicity of the Gospels, um, stuff that I, I think anybody here in this group of people have I've already heard a million times before. Um, certainly, it, it's interesting for people who haven't heard it. Um, but for someone who might be well versed in some of the counter apologetics, I wasn't as uh, impressed. Uh, I will say that afterwards, I, I did get to have the opportunity to talk to some of the people who attended, and I got to ask, "Hey, what did you think about this? You know, were uh, did this change your mind about things?" Um, I think one thing was interesting was that he did. So, like one uh, example in particular was he did talk about the Big Bang for a bit, and he talked about evidences for the Big Bang, um, and that's kind of a big deal because I live in an area where there are a lot of creationists around here, and certainly a lot of them at Baylor um, in particular. Uh, some of the people in the Baylor apologetics group who was hosting the event uh, also were creationists. Uh, some of them were, not all of them. I, I know some of them are watching right now, so uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that they're here. Um, and so I, I got to talk to some people about that in particular. I was like, what do you think about Frank Turek saying that he believes in the Big Bang? Do you think that that does that roll with your beliefs? Did you know? Does that change your mind? Do you think you're convinced at all? So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that sometimes seeing the uh, that point, the Christian worldview is not necessarily lining up, even when all the Christians are in the same place, you know, ostensibly talking about the same subject. But um, I had an interesting time, um, and that was my first apologetics lecture I've ever been to. So um, I'm glad I got to go. But unfortunately, uh, I'm still an atheist. Uh, he, he didn't really budge me on that too much. So, uh, so uh, as far as Related to SE, Joe, I see your comment there. Um, I think it's good to, to know what people are thinking. I think it's good to know where people get their ideas from. And I also think it's good to know how people are convinced of those ideas. So I saw a lot of how Frank Turek approached uh, his, his method in teaching people why you should believe in the things that he believes. Um, and I will say that at some points it did make me uncomfortable. I think that there were a lot of emotional appeals, certainly not everything. Um, and, and there was a lot of appeals to what people already believed. So, I mean, he really knew his audience. 99% of the people in there were Christians. And so it, it really reinforced this idea in my mind that apologetics are, for the most part, for the common audience, are for people who already believe. That's not to say that everybody who does apologetics or is interested in apologetics are doing it to confirm what they already believe. I think some people do it because they think it's the most honest interpretation of what what is considered true. But I cannot help but get the feeling that you know that man is in there to sell books. He's in there to sell uh, to appeal to an audience that he knows will really buy it up, and who who are concerned about their own beliefs, who have doubts, and who want answers to those doubts. And and he's able to provide those answers. So. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Unless you guys had any questions about that, or um. 
I think you had posted a video of your question and his response somewhere. Is there a place that we can find that? Yeah, um, find that? I can get you a link to it if you want. Um, so I have it right oh, here, actually, and I can. Yeah, we'll put, a, we'll put a card up there on the, on the corner there for you. Yeah, we'll add a card to the video and maybe you can tweet it out, Dan, as well. Cool. So, uh, Aaron, look like right, looks cool. like you're a. Uh, Looks like your sign is up. So it was really nice talking to you. So thanks so much for, for coming. Yeah, I want to say I really appreciate you having me on here. And um, I, I am just uh, really amazed by the way you guys picked up on the, the ways that the overlap between motivational interviewing and street epistemology. Um, and I, I really am enjoying all the videos that are being put out there. I think it's just great. Keep up the good work. Um, take care of yourself, Anthony. I'll talk to you soon, and I hope to hear from you, you, um, you guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah, so much. And please, I, I know that you've been involved with the SE. I know that you've been involved with the SE community for a long time, and I really appreciate that. And keep sending us your your professional suggestions. We greatly appreciate it, and I think it's it's making SE better at what it does. So yeah, I think it's going to your your expertise. It's going to take a little bit of everything to tackle this problem. Um, and you, you know, I, I think that's why it's, it's so important for so many different contributors to be around and so many different styles to be contributing. So thanks. Thanks to everybody. Nice talking to yeah. you guys. Thanks. Thanks, thanks again, Aaron. Cool. So, uh, I guess we'll just right. wrap up with a few questions. Uh, are there any questions that jump out to you guys? Uh, Aaron. Just left, so we were going to ask like if motivational interviewing gets any criticisms like like Essie does. I I would assume not as much. <laughs> no. Yeah, I imagine it has a lot more empirical backing than we do. <laughs> um, yeah, in fact, somebody somebody recently messaged me like two days ago, and they said, "Is are there any data on street epistemology, the success and and that type of thing?" I said, "No," but from what I understand, SE is very similar to motivational interviewing, and there are there there is some research out there on on motivational interviewing. But I think what Aaron was suggesting is that uh, well, I don't know if he went that far. We might want to not draw too many conclusions about SE from the results of MI because there mm -hmm. probably are some subtle differences. Yeah, there's some similarities, but I don't know if we can go so far as to say, well, hey, motivational interviewing is, is successful, and SE is related to uh, to to MI, therefore. SE is effective. I, I think mm -hmm. we should be very careful and not make that leap too soon. Yeah, um, we uh, we might be able to say instead of considering SE as a broader uh, like communication theory as a whole, maybe if we considered SE as a loose set of ideas, right? And if we looked at those ideas individually and shared what was the same between those two, that we could say for sure are the same. We might be able to say that there is some empirical data to back that up. But again, that's, you know, that's not including SE as a whole. That's just as a loose set of ideas. So I think, yeah, after talking to Aaron, I think the biggest takeaway for myself is, is this idea that people who have an addiction want to fix it. People who have a belief that's their norm and that's their identity and they think it's virtuous to have it. So there's a huge difference in our starting points on these things. 
yeah, maybe the the techniques are very similar, but the starting point is quite different. And I think that probably needs to be factored in when when we get to the point of measuring success when it comes to yeah. SE. I'd agree with that. Joe, are there any picture, uh, any questions in particular that are jumping out to you that we should tackle? Uh, I, what, what you had just said there, actually, uh, this very different starting point, I'm thinking maybe that could be the source of a lot of the uh, accusations of, of trickery and dishonesty. Because if you're at the starting point yeah. of, hey, there's nothing wrong with me, and then you challenge their beliefs, they're going to feel like, hey, wait a minute, what just happened here? Whereas yeah. if you if you sort of knew that you had a problem to begin with, you're not going to respond in that sort of way, maybe. Okay, this this reminds me of a really good question that somebody else who is a prof professional in psych uh, psychology suggested. And it's, I'm going to botch it, but it's something along the lines of, and I want to try this out, but it's something along the lines of, if this was a belief just strongly about, but it was something that you wished wasn't true, Wait. do you think that you would be more objective in questioning it as you are now? You broke up a bit, Anthony. Can you start over? So sort yeah, of framing it. Yeah, yeah. Repeat, repeat that real quick. Okay. Well, here I'm going to try. I'm going to try to look it up because I think I wrote it down, and I don't want to. I don't want to botch it. Okay. Um, uh, sorry. I think I have it here. Okay. I, I I'm not able to find it, but it's something along the lines of if this belief that we're discussing wasn't virtuous and it wasn't tied to your identity and it isn't something that gets you through the day and you get a tremendous amount of comfort and value and and loving beauty from it if this was a if, if this was a belief that you wanted to discard do you think that you would look at the evidence that you hold for the belief and your willingness to possibly discard a belief would it be different if this was a belief that you wished you didn't have hmm. and i think I don't know for sure, but I think the genesis of that question came from a talk that I had with a woman named Delmi who believed in karma and that she was being karmically punished for something she did 10 years ago. And I think that watching that video inspired this one psychotherapist to come up with that question. I could be mistaken. Yeah, that, it sounds like kind of a roundabout question. way of asking, um, ask, asking them to oh, talk yes. about why the belief is so important to them. Uh, I think no. I think it's more about bias, really. Are you biased? Yeah, it goes to that belief. If if this was a belief, yeah. If this was a belief that you didn't want to have, would you be more open to discarding it? If this is a belief that that you find tremendous value, are you more protective of it? Are you less willing to investigate it? Yeah, it, it sounds I like it's a really interesting question. That I want to experiment with. It's like, does the quality of the evidence for this belief change based on the? benefits or consequences of this belief something like that yeah and uh are, is your cry does your criteria vary are you less skeptical because this is a belief that you enjoy having this I, this i was reminded of this when doug was having his conversation pine creek recently was talking with a guy i think he's a pastor christian pastor named dean mm -hmm. and we'll put a link to it here and i, I D, uh, doug was asking a similar question along those lines of um, you know, would, would you, something along the lines of, would you be more skeptical towards this belief if, if the, if you found that this belief was harmful to you? I think he I, asked if it didn't matter to you, whether or not this was true or not. 
would the evidence change or like would your feelings about the evidence change like if you didn't care if you couldn't care less about like the outcome of this inquiry would that would the evidence you think of that you know of now change it's interesting that all all of these questions really are are sort of dancing around the the confirmation bias the the fallacy the logical fallacy that 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 represents and and it's like we're all just sort of very trying to gently guide someone into realizing that they're they're being you know they're making this logical mistake without actually just saying you're making a mistake see you know Mm. you're doing this wrong it's like we're trying to gently very carefully get them to realize it themselves and i've noticed a it seems like a lot of se questions really are attempts to um uh uh destroy logical fallacies or or point them out without pointing them out you know yeah for sure yeah, Doug's in the chat. He, he said, if you couldn't care less about the outcome, would you view the evidence differently? Yeah, I think that's, that's what he said. Yeah, right. right, right, right. Yeah, which I think goes to this whole idea of trying to be out as, as an atheist if you can, because if we normalize non-belief and we, we can show that we have meaningful, loving lives, by and we don't believe in any gods then i think it's harder for a person to hold on to a belief um yeah. if that's the underpinnings of it right if if I, the main reason why i'm believing this is because it gives my life value and i don't understand how i could cope with life without it and then you see half of your neighbors coping, coping through just believing in a god I think it's tougher to hold on to a belief i certainly felt that way for sure yeah that was one of the biggest things I remember that I could not get over. I could not get, like the lifestyle change. You know, it wasn't the logical parts. It was the, I don't know how to function without this belief. Um, and I'm, I'm getting along just fine. <laughs> yeah. This goes back to Jonathan Haidt's religious psychology, uh, at least how I think about it. It's not belief drives our, our actions. It's, it's belief actions and belonging all in a triangle yes. and they all point towards each other and they all intermix so it's not just our beliefs that matter it's, it's our it's our social community a more moral community that had absolutely to do yeah but because oh, i was yeah. in ministry and because i had grown up in this community for so long like belief had a huge a very high value in terms of social structure for me that i really wasn't willing to let go uh because it the benefits of being in there were just great, you know? Um, and, and now I'm not, and, and it, it's difficult to transition through that, you know, because suddenly it, it becomes self-isolated in a sense, uh, because a lot of my lifestyle, you know, I went to church, I went to youth groups, I did meetings with people, all that had to change because, you know, I didn't believe it anymore. And so that's a, that's a really hard thing to go through. And, and I wish people considered that a lot more when discussing that with people, that it's not just a, a logic thing. It's a, it is a bigger picture going on that we can't always see. A lot more. It's a lot more to do with with the their world, their yeah. entire world, their their emotional world, their social, uh, 
surroundings and all that. I got to get this in before we move on to the next question. But one of the highlights of my trip to Oslo was when we were, I gave my talk, we were at the pub and this woman and her boyfriend sat down next to me. And the woman said that she, when she was watching me play the example of this woman struggling with this idea, karma and listening to my questions, she said, Anthony, I started to cry when I was in the audience watching that because it reminded me of the questions that I was asking myself because I was raised in this religious family and I used to believe that demons were real. And these are the questions that I asked myself and my boyfriend and my boyfriend encouraged me to ask. And she said that she reached a point where she realized if I re-inject myself into my community that believes all this stuff, I won't be able to honestly evaluate this belief in the way that I think I need to in order to determine if it's true or not. She mm -hmm. intentionally segregated herself from her community so that she, she did it for like three months. She intentionally avoided seeking out those friends and the pastor and the church and all this stuff, or family members even, so that she can think it through. And she said, if I didn't force myself to do that, I probably wouldn't have reflected on the belief as honestly and openly as I did. And I now no longer hold this belief. So she was very, very excited about SE and listening to her recount that story was the highlight, one of the highlights of my trip. And, and there were several. And that was a big, that was a great one to hear that type of, the type of response. Yeah, Jonathan Hyde talks about morality binds and blinds and religions are a moral system. So if it's like a magnetic field, so you're like, you're circling around these values and you're being pulled in. And if you let yourself like not think about that or get, get into a, an area where you're so pulled into these ideas, you can kind of see a little bit what's on the edge and what's on the outside. You're not, you're not being sucked into this gravitational well that is the belief system. Yeah. Part of there was one other point in that conversation where I asked her, I said, do you believe in demons? And she said, oh yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting because a lot of people, you know, in the US that are raised in Christianity, for example, when they no longer believe, hell is a thing that they struggle with. She said, oh no, no, no. I, I never, I, I have no worries about hell because I was never taught about it. But I was taught about demons. demons yes. <laughs> yeah. And then like, I think the light bulb moment went off for her to be like, oh, and I think she even said, if I was taught about hell, I'd probably be worried about it just like I was worried about the demons. So I, I think it was just a wow. phenomenal little did, did, update. Did, are you saying that when she said it, said the demon thing out loud, she, she sort of thought differently suddenly about it when, when she heard herself say it like maybe, maybe uh, I think when she yeah I think when she thought that if she had been taught about hell she'd probably be fearing hell just like she feared the demons I don't know if she still holds the fear and yes I'm noticing that I'm blurry so sorry about that um, I think it she it helped her realize that her fear in demons if there was if there was any residual fear that it's it's more than likely because she was taught it. And if she was taught something completely different, she might still be struggling with that type of fear. And that that discovery in itself is probably helping her cope with her fear if there is any still of these demons. Well, I, I still think that SE, one of the main benefits to SE overall is is just us representing a a, a, a different or combating the stereotype of you know the the unhappy, bitter, angry atheist stereotype that that uh, can't function and is, you know, mm -hmm. if if all we did yeah. accomplished was that, it would be a huge win, I I think. Yeah.
Yeah, but Joe, you're just being a sneaky atheist. I'd much prefer an aggressive <laughs> in your face. We gotta talk about we gotta talk about okay. this this next question. Dishonesty stuff sometime. Uh, next question. Let's plow through these. There's a bunch of them for Aaron, unfortunately, and he's gone now. Yeah, there was something about um, would it be unethical for someone in the health area to not debunk health related topics afterward, like an SE conversation. Like I know my last video I uploaded, I was talking about, you know, that person who does the Yahweh that like that healing where they just put their hands up to someone and think they're healing someone. Um, and I had like a 30, 40, 45 minute conversation with this woman. And by the end, she's talking about how she uses the sway test to judge the, the, ver the veracity of like supplements or health, uh, health procedures okay, and i'm like i know <laughs> debunking these things does not work would not work with this person like it, even from this latest backfire effect uh episode from you're not so smart it's like maybe i can change a little bit about a certain belief or a certain claim but it's the underlying attitude that has to change well it's the it's the attitude but it's also the skill set yeah you know but, teaching this woman like yeah. if this was the same woman that i think you're talking about she said that she would be willing to go ahead and do a test on something like the next time she gets yeah. spot or what was it writing down a number and then seeing if she could guess it and doing that 10 times or something i, I can't remember exactly like the, the tic tac test the even though even on the odd tic tacs if you so, do a test for that or, or something. So to the extent that, that we have done good in that situation you, you just described, to the extent that we've accomplished something, it is in getting her to uh, entertain the idea of and hopefully actually perform a test. Yeah. Yeah. That's I agree. Together. I was gonna Yeah, I was gonna echo what get Joe said. I, I think get comfortable with the process of testing. Get yes. comfortable with the process of testing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not responsible for changing her whole world, you know. If you can just get a little bit in, that's as much as any of us can do, you know. Get her to challenge it. It'll herself. start with you, and then it can be someone else, you know. Um, so, yeah. yeah and, and to try to increase the quality of your test, because she was doing the sway test in her mind. Mm -hmm. But um, Test the so, test, right? Yeah. <laughs> Teaching her yeah. skeptical to be. This reminds me of a guy who reached out to me. We've been Facebook messaging and Facebook telephoning each other, and and it's like he didn't understand the way that a person should perform a test. He had this thing where he thought God existed because he could close his eyes, guess what time it was, or ask his God to tell him what time it was. He'd open his eyes, and lo and behold. The time on the clock was the time, you know, that yeah. he was, that the voice of God told him. So we really spent a lot of time talking about, well, how could we test that? How could a skeptical person test that? And he just seemed, he, he almost seemed to lack the ability to construct a test that would, that had some rigor to it. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to education. It's education. We need to teach people how to think when they're young. We, yeah. we just, we're not doing that. Well, I'll, I need to add on to that. It's education, but it's also willingness, right? Because some people have been taught that they shouldn't be even willing to test themselves 
in those areas, right? Because faith is supposed to be a valuable virtue and that we are not to test, you know, uh, forces that so maybe maybe there should be more education in school and less in church. <laughs> and, and step zero for a good test is that there could be a result that could show falsifiable. your hypothesis to be false. It has to be falsifiable in theory or it hasn't boosted your confidence. Like, like what's the point well, of the test? Now you're reminding me of now you're reminding me of something else that came up in that conversation with Doug that he asked uh, if the guy could write down can you name three things that somebody who doesn't believe in this thing that you believe in found compelling? You know, like I think the guy said something like, cause the Bible was true for him. If it could be shown that, what was it? Um, that there was a significant amount of time from the event to when it was recorded. That might be one thing that I would accept to lower my, that, that somebody, not me. No, no, no. I'm willing to accept that, but somebody might not find that compelling. All of it is just uh, cajoling people into uh, uh, doubting. You know, the, your gift of doubt. It's, it's we're, we're trying to get people to consider uh, ways of falsifying their beliefs. I think it's to to help people see that doubting is valuable. We do it all the time. Some of the best decisions right. you make in your life are because you doubted. When you're deciding to buy a house, you check out the schools, you you drive around, you see maybe what the crime rate is like, and you know you start thinking, you're gathering evidence, and you're questioning, and you're, you're using hypotheticals and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But there are some yeah, I, that do that for. I think SC also is it's just giving people that space to doubt too in circumstances where they might not otherwise even attempt or want or desire to do it, right? Because uh, if if they in fact. If in terms of giving people space, if you're the if you go at people with the standard, you know, firebrand atheism, you're not giving them the space. You're coming right, right at them and, and you're basically you're triggering their, their emotions and their reactions. There's no space. The space is gone. We're in a fight now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because like I said, some people they've heard certain arguments and they've internalized that and they've they've found ways for them to make that work. But that's not what's important. It, it's the it's the thing as a whole that we have to tackle, you know. Um, and, and if we're not letting them express what they what they really want to know or what they really think about something, then you know it, it doesn't go anywhere. There has to be a will there and a place to express that will. Yeah, yeah. that's where civility comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Next question. Yeah. And I think I just want to follow up about the person who asked about. You know, making asking if we need to debunk the claims, and she was saying if we need to do it like after the video is over, or or just for the audience of the people watching. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I guess for, for the video I did, I think it was pretty implicit that there were some problems with her her method and her beliefs. But I guess if there is some type of ambiguity there, I would most likely, yeah, say something at the end or put some some type of. Uh, you know, warning, debunking, warning or, or something at the end. So yeah, yeah. I would keep that. There will mind. probably be people in the comments that would do that for you, but yeah, maybe, maybe there could be some benefit of, you know, eating a Tide Pod is not going to <laughs> clean your soul. Is that? I keep seeing that people are eating those things. Uh, hey Joe, don't worry about it. You know, no, no try to try not to worry about it. Like each, each generation has their own 
problems, their own cross to bear. That's mine. Okay. We just, <laughs> you know. Uh, we have a so there's sort of a tongue-in-cheek question from Rachel. Is there any thoughts on doing SE in public but indoors because she lives in Canada where it's snowing? Um, any advice on like where to go for that? Yeah. The advice. Coffee is, shops. Is like, yeah. Are there any public like, spaces that are indoors? Like malls? Wouldn't that be? Uh, malls I mean, are malls are yeah. private. If it's an outdoor mall, no, I guess that's not in churches. Never mind. Go to a library. Go to a library. Mm -hmm. You can't talk in a library, silly. What? Yeah, nowadays, they don't care anymore. You interview okay. from in a library. You you filmed from in a library once. You can find little I, quiet split. Yeah, it was in a study room, but yeah. Yeah. How about uh, college campuses, like the uh, I don't know, what do they call them, where the kids. Where where the kids hang out on the college campus? The union union building. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> where the where those are, those, are where, where those can be noisy. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Cafeteria my, maybe. Yeah, my, my recommendation would be a library. I I'd suggest a library. Go where all the kids are vaping. Mm. But if you go to a library, talk with the people first. Don't mm. just start setting up. Mm -hmm. Like say hey. I have this thing I want to try street epistemology. I'm going to start asking people. I don't want me to cause any trouble and a disruption here, but just to warn you, I'm going to be out here and doing that. And it really shouldn't be a problem. Just don't surprise any. Don't surprise the people that are. Just to let you know, I'm going to be here destroying people's. I'm going to be here, but destroying people's beliefs. Just to let you know. I think that's about all the questions, really. Unless anybody else sees anything. Anybody else in the chat have any questions? There was one here from Linda. How does one get over the need to, to uh, what to tell, give the answer, and uh, instead focus on the questions? Um, yeah. based on how, how do you resist the temptation to, to tell people what to believe? I think that's what you mean. The yeah. truth. Yeah. You have any thoughts, Reed? Um. For me, it's just based on the lack of effectiveness of doing that. Practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you do that a couple times, and then you start realizing, oh, gosh, now I, now I, I have to listen for two minutes of them explaining how what I just told them is not right. And you're not getting to the epistemology at all. So I agree. I think I agree with you, Reed, that you do it a few times, you start to realize that it was ineffective. It's not driving you to the foundation. You're still up here in the clouds. And uh, you do that a few times, and you start to realize that it's ineffective. Right. Usually. I mean, there are some people that are convinced by it. Yeah. But I guess it, yeah. it, where they're at. it might depend on the on the topic. If it's not closely tied to their identity or, or, or social right. circle, then, then maybe you could just try to explain your point of view and see what they think. Mm -hmm. That's probably one of my biggest problems even still that I struggle with when trying to do SE is I still have a tendency of being like, Oh, this is a basic fact that I think I can correct, but like really, you know, that's not, it's not for me to do, you know? Um, it, and, and you're right. It derails from the conversation. It doesn't, you know, help us get anywhere. So. But it, it can be something that you can do when the person is ready for it. 
It, the, yeah. the, the trick here, I think, is figuring out where a person is and then meeting them where they're at, like Bogosian always says. And and yeah, there you can you can yeah maybe you have to meet somebody using SE, uh, and then you reach a point where okay they're like yeah now I'm ready to be shown how mistaken I am, but people are rarely at that point to start. Mm -hmm. It can also be presumptuous too. You know, it doesn't look good on the character because it makes you seem like you're trying to proclaim some sort of truth, you know, and not trying to have a dialogue. So yeah. Right. So you've got some stuff coming up, Anthony, a bunch of appearances and, and yeah, man, I've got a busy freaking month here. Couldn't could busy freaking next couple of months. Um, yeah. It's uh, I'm going to be on uh, the thinking atheist. Seth Andrews is going to have a panel discussion on the various tactics that are available to questioning a person's belief and possibly changing their mind. And right now, I think he's planning to have Matt Dillahunty and Sarah Hader on and possibly one other person. So that should be really cool. Um, mm. I, I didn't realize this until I got back, but next Tuesday, I am giving a talk to the Secular Student Alliance here at the, at the university that's very close to my house. So that's the second time that I'll be um, giving a talk to them. It's, it's every two years or so, they have a fresh group of people. And I want to go ahead and give another talk on SE there. Um, I was just informed that I've been asked to go to NanoCon to give a talk and also give a, do a workshop on street epistemology. NanoCon is going to be in Nashville, Tennessee on March 17th. So that should be really fun. Um, I'll be promoting that uh, pretty soon. The title of my talk, at least sort of the temporary uh, title right now is, May I Change Your Mind? obtaining consent and other considerations before conducting street epistemology. And then we'll give the same workshop twice there. And then two weeks later is the American Atheist Convention in Oklahoma City. It's sort of the weekend of, of April 1st, and I will be giving a workshop on street epistemology as well as a talk on the method too. So I'm really excited to be doing that. That's going to be really cool. I think so that's going to help expose SE to a lot of people who may have never heard of it before. Plus, also, I think it could probably be a draw for some of the people, people that may have never gone to these conferences might go because there's an SE component and there's a workshop, a hands-on workshop where you can not only learn about the method, but practice it and do some role play. And uh, that's it, man. I mean, I'd, I'd like to get back on the street and do some more talks, but I've been busy with this stuff coming up that I just mentioned, as well as editing the video for my talk in Norway. Yeah, I and, think I might be able to meet you and, out there for the American. Daniel, did you have a did you have a question? I was going to say. Oh, I, I'm also that read? hopefully planning on coming as well. Well, we'll all three. Yeah. Which one? The Oklahoma one? Yeah, uh, American atheist. Oh. oh, yeah, that's right. We talked about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, got, I got some tickets. I got some tickets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Daniel, I forgot. I'm sorry, Daniel. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> don't take it personally. No, but yeah, uh, Daniel and I are going to be Daniel and I are going to be hanging out. It sounds like Reed's going to be coming to that one, and we're going and we're going to table at the American Atheist Convention as well as the NanoCon one. We're going to have a table, and we're going to probably do something similar that we did in a QED Con, where we'll have a big monitor, a laptop, and I've in preparation for my trip to Norway, I've already made this up. There's like seven or eight videos that that run. They're just short little two, three-minute clips 
where people can put headphones on and watch the video of mm -hmm. people using SE. And Reed, you have one of the one of your videos is in there. Mm -hmm. So people will be able to see it firsthand, talk to people. We can probably even practice it with people there. Uh, and that should be really cool um, to do. I'll be making a yeah. post in yeah. one of the private SE Facebook groups asking for volunteers to help us with either the NanoCon convention in Nashville or the Athe American Atheist Convention in Oklahoma yeah. City because we're going to need volunteers to man the table. Yeah, I would love to do a bunch of SC at an American Atheist Convention demonstrating that it doesn't have to be about religious beliefs, <laughs> pretty much. So that's great. Yeah. I, I wonder how many believers they have show up to those things. Hmm. Got to be so. Oh, yeah, you're right. Just like we were talking earlier, like in Oslo, you could still have a conversation about uh, using SE where it's not about God. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I don't think that they've even made those announcements officially, but they've been updating their website with the little bio and the pictures and stuff. So, you know, I'm this close to being able to, like, to publicly, I guess I've already, I've, I've just publicly announced it, but we'll start tweeting about it and making posts about it and looking for volunteers to help out with those really soon. Cool. Send pictures. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. So, uh, everybody just want to give their, Social media info where people can find you, Joe. What about you? Uh, I, I have no social media. Okay, Anthony. He's in that social. Yep. Um, I'll give mine. Uh, Joe's been helping me with a website, anthonymagnabosco.com, and it's got all the different ways you can reach me, including an email address. Um, there's also, I think, if you click it, it expands and it shows you all the talks I've given, all the interviews, any blog posts that I've written. I'm thinking about going through and adding links to the videos of the talks that I give, like the people, like the the, the, the little interviews that I do on the street too. So mm -hmm. uh, I've just added the the last three, the Oslo, Oklahoma, and Nashville uh, to that. And uh, you can reach me there. Nice. And Dan? Yeah. So I do have a Twitter. I don't know if everyone knows that. Uh, I'm trying to be better at actually using it this year, one of my resolutions. So you can follow me at Objectively Dan. Um, and if I like you enough, maybe we can DM on Facebook. Um, but uh, catch me on there first, and uh, that's pretty much where you can find me. So, objectively, cool. Dan. Yeah. And that's again, it. I'm Reed Nice Wonder. Yeah, what, Dan? I'm objectively Dan. Objectively Dan. Gotcha. And you can mm -hmm. catch me at uh, Cordial Curious on Twitter or Cordial Curiosity on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Or just find me on Facebook, read Nice Wonder, as well. So uh, yeah, this is a very, really great chat, guys. Thanks, for, thanks for doing it. All right, fantastic. Woo! We really love it. And if you if you get a chance, if you are watching this on, like an, uh, not watching it, if it's an iTunes podcast, uh, please go ahead and and give us a like. I guess you give us a thumbs up or a, no, you ra you rank it like a five star review, really yeah, five stars. Yeah, <laughs> and I noticed that the number of subscribers. I think we had like four hundred forty four when we started Epistemic. And we've crossed over like 550 or something. That's really nice. good to see. And it seems like more people are listening to the podcast as opposed to watching the broadcast. I'm not exactly sure why that yeah. is. Maybe there's there just people that aren't aware that yeah. we're video recording this. Is there somewhere people can give or feedback about it. the show? I guess besides just in the chat mm -hmm. or anywhere. Do we want? You can always feedback? leave a comment on the video. Go to the YouTube channel, Street Epistemology. And, yeah, just uh, you leave can a subscribe. Comment. We've also created a playlist of all the epistemic episodes. Yeah, I'd love to get some feedback on it. Cool. All right. All right.
thanks guys see you guys cool. next time thanks for watching everybody and catch yeah. you next time Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.